On August the 28th, 1945, Jackie Robinson met with Branch Rickey, the president of the Brooklyn Dodgers. Robinson thought he was being recruited to play for one of the African-American teams under Rickey, but Branch Rickey had other plans. He said, Jackie, I want to sign you up for the Dodgers. He had this boisterous voice that just took over the room. He said, I want to sign you up for the Dodgers. I, I want you to play for my farm team, the Montreal Royals. And if you're good enough, I'll promote you to the Dodgers. I want to win the pennant, and we need good ball players. God is with us in this, Jackie. Do you think you can do it? And Robinson waited for what seemed like an eternity and then said, yes. Unknown to Robinson, Branch Rickey had done his homework on his recruit. And he loved Jackie Robinson. He loved his intelligence, his athleticism, his career in the military. He liked everything about Robinson except his temper. Branch Rickey said, I know you're a good ball player, but what I don't know is whether you have the guts. And those words stung Robinson because no one had ever questioned his guts. And when Jackie Robinson started to respond, Branch Rickey cut him off. He said, I'm looking for a ball player with the guts not to fight back. And right then, Branch Rickey started role-playing. He took off his coat and there in his vest and his tie while he was a white hotel clerk refusing Robinson a room. And then he was a white waiter denying Robinson service. And then he was a white train conductor. And then he was a foul-mouthed opposing player who ridiculed Robinson in language I cannot repeat. And Branch Rickey was a devout Methodist too. Jackie... We have no army. There's virtually nobody on our side. No owners, no umpires, no press. I need a man big enough to bear the cross of martyrdom. He must be a superlative man, an outstanding player on the field, and a thorough gentleman off it. And then Branch Rickey quoted Jesus from Matthew chapter 5 in the old King James Version. Whoever shall smite thee on thy right cheek, turn to him also the other. And after hearing the text and understanding Branch Rickey's point and thoroughly ingesting what was being asked of him, Jackie Robinson quietly said, I have two cheeks, Mr. Rickey. And Jackie Robinson's life is a story of self-control. Self-control. That's our word for today. If you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn to the New Testament book of Galatians. Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 through 24. We have been in a series over the fruit, the harvest of the Holy Spirit. Hear these words from the Apostle Paul. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus 
have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Now, this is God's word. We are in a season of stressing the Great Commission. We call it the Simple Commission. And it's simple because it's clear that Christ has commissioned us to become disciples who make disciples for his glory. But what does a disciple look like when we have been used by God as a disciple to make disciples? What does a, what's a disciple look like? Well, Paul answers us in Galatians 5, and following, the fruit of the Spirit. That's what a disciple looks like. I think an overlooked aspect of Jackie Robinson's story is the role that his Christian faith played in addressing the injustice of discrimination. Listen to what he said. I'm not the most religious person in the world. I believe in God, in the Bible, in trying to do the right thing as I understand it. Robinson went on to say, I'm sure there are many, many better, other better Christians than I. Yet it has always impressed me that two of the people who had the greatest influence on my life, my mother and Branch Rickey, had such deep faith in the existence of a supreme being. Then he said this, it's one thing to express faith. It's another thing to do as these two people did, to practice faith every day of one's life. Well, that's the power of Christianity, that Christ comes and occupies our hearts and then lives out his life in and through our life. Isn't that what Paul says in Galatians 2, 20? I've been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live, I live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So the miracle of Christianity is that God in Christ takes up residence in our lives through his Holy Spirit. And when God lives within, we change. When God shows up, people change. So when the Bible talks about bearing fruit, it's not talking about something we do to produce fruit. The seed does the work. The spirit supplies the growth. We cooperate, and the harvest is self-control. Self-control, enkratea. It means to take hold on, to get a grip on. On what? On your emotions on your desires, your words, your anger, your body. Self-control is the ability to look at a piece of chocolate cake and not eat it. Self-control immediately closes the window when an explicit link pops up on your computer screen. Self-control promptly ends the conversation when the topic turns to gossip. The logic of self-control suggests a conflict between a divided self. So, so it means that 
our self produces desires, some of which must be restrained. And Paul compares the Christian faith to an Olympic sport. He wants us to take our faith as seriously as an athlete takes the Olympics. That's the point of 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 25 and 27. He says, do you not know that in a race, all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? You see, back then, there was no gold, silver, bronze. There was none of that. This was old school. There was only one winner, and everybody else was losers. That's it. Only one receives the prize. So Paul says, so run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises, here's the word, self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath. You didn't even get a medal back then. You received a wreath, a wreath that would, that would become like your lawn leaves. It would just perish. Paul says, we, we exercise self-control for an imperishable wreath. And then he says, so I do not run aimlessly. I don't box as one beating the air. I discipline my body and keep it under control. There it is. Lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. So according to Paul in 1 Corinthians 9, self-control is not interested in the question, what do you want out of life? Well, I want to be happy, and I want to have a family, and I want to have a job. Well, well okay, okay. But, but self-control asks a better question, and here it is. What pain do you want in your life? What are you willing to struggle for? What difficulty are you willing to endure? See, that's the question of an Olympian. Self-control says that the quality of your life is not contingent on the quality of your positive experiences, but that of your negative experiences. And you cannot compete as an Olympian without suffering self-control. So how do you choose to suffer? which makes self-control the outcome of training, not trying. Self-control is a muscle to develop daily, not a fire extinguisher to use occasionally. Self-control says that grace is opposed to earning, but grace is not opposed to effort. And self-control acknowledges that, that there are sins of unchecked desires which are actually quite pleasurable. I mean, you might as well just admit it, right? Why do we sin? Because it's fun. At first. At first. Self-control is not Samson, whose first spoken words in Scripture were, I saw a woman. And it's not Solomon who said in Ecclesiastes 2.10, I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. He must have been an American. 
Self-control is what Joseph did when Potiphar's wife said, come to bed with me. He fled. He ran. That's an act of self-control. So self-control isn't, okay, I'm just going to resist, resist, resist. No, no. Self-control has a good pair of running shoes on. And and self-control is not self-sufficiency. It's not self-dependence. It's not, well, I can do this by myself. No. No, this is a letter to a community. See? It's it's spirit-empowered training that leads us together to say yes to the spirit and no to the flesh. And so let me just, let's put it all together. Let's compact this into one big idea. Here it is. Self-control is the spirit-bestowed blessing of walls, wisdom, and Christ-exalting passion. Walls, wisdom, and Christ-exalting passion. Let me talk about each of those briefly. First, walls. Proverbs 25, 28 says, Like a city whose walls are broken down is a man who lacks self-control. So self-control asks all of us, what walls, what walls need to be built to protect us from idols, from enemies who want to invade and destroy the city of our lives? Are, are there passwords on internet accounts that must be opened by someone else? Have we discarded the reminders of past idolatrous relationships? Do we have a schedule that others have access to so that they know where we are? Do we have a system uh, of automatic deductions for savings and retirement so that the money is out of reach? Walls are good. Walls are our friend. Walls protect us. What are your walls? And then there's wisdom. Self-control values wisdom. Self-control values thoughtfulness over impulsiveness. Self-control wisely asks, who will be affected by this? Is this beneficial? Will this bring goodwill? Self-control thinks before it acts. Proverbs 16, 32. Whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit is better than he who takes a city. You want to be a better commander than Alexander the Great? Rule your spirit. Proverbs 12, 16, fools show their annoyance at once, but the prudent overlook an insult. And self-control understands the fundamental law of the harvest. Paul talks about it in Galatians 6, 7, and 8. 
Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. So, so self-control asks the question, what am I planting now that, that will be reaped later? So who we are right now is the result the harvest of planting that occurred you know, yesterday, two weeks ago, two months ago, 20 years ago. Every day is planting day, and every day is harvest day. And the person that we are today is the result of planting that took place. We're the result of seeds that were sown, and they always surface. Always surface. See? Hmm. So when we see the tragic downfall of, <laughs> you name it, you know, pastors, sports figures, people in public, you say, how, how did that happen? That just, that just came out of nowhere. Not really. Not really, no. Because you reap what you sow. It's, it's, it's the law of the harvest, you see. So there's walls, and there's wisdom, and then there's Christ-exalting passion. Christ-exalting passion. There's a, a myth that self-controlled people are from the planet Vulcan. And that's not true. Self-controlled people are neither emotionally flat nor indifferent. They're actually quite passionate. Self-control is passion fruit. Their passion is for their king. You see, see the, the, the Christian way of self-control is not to just say no. Okay. In the 1980s, there was an anti-drug campaign um, titled, Just Say No. That was the slogan. Well, you don't just say no. You, you say no in a certain way. You say no by faith in the superior power and pleasure of Christ. And the no may be just as ruthless, and the no may be just as painful, but the difference between worldly self-control and Christ-exalting self-control is crucial because Christ-exalting self-control asks the question, who's going to get the glory for the victory? See, that's the issue. Are we going to get the glory? There, there is a kind of self-control that is condescending and legalistic and arrogant. But humble Christ-exalting self-control always gives Christ the glory, always. And if we exercise self-control by faith in Christ's superior power and pleasure, Christ gets the glory because sin 
becomes uninteresting. And when it's uninteresting, it's just, it just has lost its appeal and, and its luster. And that's because of this beautiful harvest of self-control. Well, that gets us to the question, why? Why, why self-control? I mean, these traits reflect the heart of God. God is love. God is joy. God is peace. God is patient. But, but self-control? God doesn't need self-control over sin. He doesn't have to hold in or check any sinful desires. 1 John 1, 5 says God is light. And in him is no darkness at all. So why self-control? Well, because self-control is something we need, not something God has to exercise. And we can see this when we look at this list prior to the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. You see that list, the vice list in verses 19, 20, and 21? Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions. What's that? Well, that's the life out of control, isn't it? It's chaos. So here's the question. What do you really want? Do you, want to, do you want to move into a subdivision called works of the flesh? Do you want to rear your children there amidst impurity and sensuality and fits of rage? Or do we want them in the garden park where orchards of love and joy and peace and patience prevail? What do, you, what do we want? So recently... The Pew Research Center released a 168,000-person survey on life and religion in the United States. In 2009, 77% of adults self-identified as Christians. In 2019, that number shrank to 65%. At the same time, the religiously unaffiliated rose from 17% to 26%. And I read that report uh, soberly. I feel more like an exile in Babylon. I don't feel like I live in Jerusalem anymore, you know, with the... With the Supporting structures of like the temple and the social structures and the cultural support and the Hebrew Bible. I mean, it feels more like Babylon. And so my mind went to Jeremiah 29, 4 through 7. When God spoke to the exiles in Babylon, listen to these words. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. 
This is what God said. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. So God says, yeah, you're in Babylon. This is no time for despair. No pity party. This is your opportunity. This is your opportunity to shine as stars in the night. Jeremiah 29, 7 says, Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. You see that? I sent you there. I've put you in this time and in this place. And you pray to the Lord on its behalf. I want you to pray for Babylon. I want you to pray for Champaign-Urbana. I want you to pray for Illinois. I want you to pray for America, our beloved country. Only because our allegiance is to our heavenly country, you see. For our citizenship is in heaven, Paul says. In its welfare, you will find your welfare. So what's going to distinguish us as believers in this era? Well, you can fake religious activity. You can even fake gifts of the Spirit. You can fake prophecy, tongues, interpretation, but you can't fake love. You can't fake joy and peace and patience. Eventually, who you are will surface. And here's the deal. The Holy Spirit's harvest is most needed in a culture of spiritual famine. So that leads us to the third question. Now what? Well, I go back to the question. What do we want? Do we, do we want self-control? The, the flesh clearly does not. The flesh clearly does not want walls. The flesh clearly does not want boundaries. The flesh prefers to make its own rules and follow its own desires. And the result is an unsatisfied and enslaved life. And in that, in that light, self-control is a beautiful gift from God, a benevolent God. So what do we really want? Do we want self-control? Do we? Careful how you answer, because it's complicated. Right? Do you want self-control? Well, well, yeah, I do, but only in pill form. You know, I don't want personal effort. Can I just swallow it and then... Or, yeah, I want self-control because I'm a pastor and it's the right answer. Or, yeah, but not at the cost of saying no to something else I really love. See, I can resist anything but temptation. Or, yeah, yeah, I want self-control sometimes. Or, yes, I want self-control tomorrow. Tomorrow. Hello, there's good news. <laughs> because Titus chapter 2, 11 and 12 helps us say yes to self-control because we've said yes to Christ. Titus 2 11 and 12, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, 
training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. So, so just as successful athletes focus on repetitive drills for game day, we followers of Christ, we, we drill ourselves. We drill ourselves on scripture reading and singing and praying and worshiping together both on the Lord's day and both in groups and individuals throughout the week. And we, we, so we, we serve the under-resourced and we, we travel stateside and internationally. We, and all of these practices remind us that it's only by God's grace in Christ that we belong to his family. We do this not in order to win. We do this because someone else has already won for us. Jesus, who found strength in the Holy Spirit, the Spirit who descended on him like a dove at his baptism, the Spirit who led him into the wilderness to be tempted, the Spirit who anointed him to preach good news to the poor and recovery of sight to the blind. Throughout, throughout Jesus' ministry, it was the Spirit who directed him and sustained him and empowered him. And on that final night before the cross, when his flesh wanted to find another way. Christ fell to the ground. He prayed, Father, not my will, but thine be done. There he found strength to say no to himself and yes to the cross where he would die for our sins. And so it is for you and me. If you put your faith in Christ, your destiny, our destiny, is absolute sinlessness in his presence in the new heavens and the new earth in a glorified body. So now is the time to start acting like the people we will soon be. 1 Peter 1.13 says, Prepare your minds for action and exercise self-control. Put all your hope in the gracious salvation that will come to you when Jesus is revealed to the world. When Jesus is revealed to the world. Do you get it? Our struggle for self-control will not last forever. Self-control is on a shot clock. There's a deadline when Jesus Christ is revealed to the world. And knowing this creates energy and urgency and a plan and a strategy. And, you know, there's a difference between I'm going to try harder this time and Jesus is coming. Oh, I love him. I want to be ready. Let's be ready. Let's help each other. Let's encourage each other. Let's challenge each other. Let's depend on him together. Let's pray together. Let's live each day as if we are going to see Christ and one day we'll be right. Amen? All right. So let's pray the fruit of the Spirit prayer together again. Heavenly Father, we pray that this day we may live in your presence and please you more and more. Lord Jesus, 
We pray that this day we may take up our cross and follow you. And Holy Spirit, we pray that this day you will fill us with yourself and cause your fruit to ripen in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And the church said, amen.